He was different. He was chosen by the gods. He thought he was. He'll be forgotten in a week. That scene that you saw there was taken from a series called The Son of God. It's a series that many of you have maybe seen. You've seen many clips from it. We've used it often. It's the story of Jesus. And, and what they did is they took the stories of Jesus that we encounter in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels. And they took those stories and they put them together. And then uh, because they did what they did to, 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 to fill in the story, they, they placed some things to say that this is what it may have looked like. They, they, they paint a picture for us. And in that clip, what you saw there was one of the seven last words, one of the seven last statements that Jesus makes on the cross. The statement that we're going to look at, a shocking statement that we're trying to make sense of as we continue on this series called Say What? Where Jesus says these things that, that just don't make sense. The way that we look at them, the way that we perceive them, the way that we would understand them, it just it doesn't seem to go with the way in which we would think or imagine that they would go. And so it's Jesus who's on a cross, and he's on the cross, and he's there, and he's there to, to meet his death. He's there to meet the end of his life. And, and it's on that cross where he announces this invitation of forgiveness. 
He said it from, from a cross. It was what you heard Perry and the worship team here in West Des Moines lead us in during that offering song. That song, the cross, was a song that I used to say was a, a song that Prince made famous that maybe our worship team did. But I think that that was a song that Prince did that our worship team just made famous because was that amazing or what? My goodness. I mean... I'm a huge Prince fan. Like one of my five favorite concerts was being able to go and see Prince perform. But boy, that was amazing. But that song, it's all about the cross. And we think about the cross, the place where Jesus announces this message of forgiveness. This would be the most unlikely of places that Jesus would say something like that. Because Jesus was on that cross for his death. We look at the cross today and we think about the cross today and we think about the cross as a message of hope and an emblem of, of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Like it's a message of hope. It's a message of life. It's a message... Of love. And just by nature that we would think these things and we would associate those things with the crosses is so surprising in and of itself. I mean, we have a cross on the top of our building. We have a cross in the middle of our worship space or whatever worship space it is that you are here during this service. We have crosses on our cars, on our clothing, in our homes, on our bodies. And we wear them and we portray them and we lift them up to, 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 to sing this anthem of who God is and, and what he's done. But at its inception, the cross was nothing more. It was nothing more than a means to an end. A means to an end for people who had violated the law and violated uh, the, the boundaries in such a way that they were to be humiliated. They were to be lifted up as, a, as an example of this is what happens when you don't do what you're supposed to do. There were other ways in which you could take a person's life in the time in which Jesus lived, but, but the worst of the worst were put to death on a cross. And the fact that, that we'd see it as different is, well, it's exactly what we're talking about. Because something happens. Something happened. And it's on that cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them because... They don't know what they're doing. Now, there are two shocking statements just within this individual sentence. I mean, forgive them. That, that, that will get to that. But the other thing is for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, my goodness. The Romans had perfected what it is that they were doing. I mean, Rome was known for its brutality. The, the Greeks before them were known for their philosophy, for their reason, for their intellect. Rome, they would scare you into obedience. And everybody that was there that day, except for just a, a few select people who had braved it and followed Jesus to the cross, were there to make sure that he actually was put to death. They don't know what they're doing. I remember when our daughter Jade, who is now nine and a half, I remember when she was probably about three years old. And my wife Bridget and I were home and all of a sudden we, we couldn't find Jade and she was quiet. And anybody who has little kids know that when you can't find them and they're quiet, that's bad news. Just bad news. And so we started looking through the, through the house, like, where's Jade? Like, Jade, Jade. And she's like, I'm up here. And so cute. Like, that was the problem, is it was so cute how she responded. And we go into our bedroom, and she had a whole thing of markers. But, but they were Sharpies. They were permanent markers. And so, yeah, I know. That's what we thought. We looked at her, and we said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm a tiger. And we're like, what are you doing? She's like, Ah, and we're like, oh my goodness, yeah, you kind of know what you're doing, but you're not able to see the scope that you're not going to be a tiger for a couple hours 
that's Sharpie. You're going to be a tiger for a couple of weeks. Like, so there's an aspect where she knew what she was doing, but she didn't get the scope of what she was doing. And I think we can look at the cross from that standpoint. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Sure, they may have known what they're doing, but there's a reality that what God was doing that they, that, that they, didn't, that they didn't understand. And I think from that vantage point, from that standpoint, it's kind of, it's kind of more logical that Jesus, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know the implications. They don't know the scope. They, they don't really know what it is that they're doing. And maybe when we look at ourselves and our lives, it's easier to, to forgive maybe in those places where the people or the person or ourselves, we don't really know what we're doing. But what about when we do? Because that's different, isn't it? And what about when we, 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 we cross the boundary, when we cross the line, when somebody crosses the boundary to us, where somebody crosses the line against us and, and we know that they actually do know what they're doing. I mean, the first aspect, forgiveness makes sense, but from the second aspect, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it, and it doesn't seem right. And it, and it doesn't seem fair. But this is the center of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. If you were to sum up the person of Jesus and why Jesus came. And you say, you, you, you get one sentence to do that. You get one sentence to say, who is Jesus? Or, or why did Jesus come? And you can't use semicolons. And you can't use a bunch of commas. It can't be a run-on sentence. You, you have to take a big breath after you say it. What were you going to say? And a lot of us would point to John chapter 3, verse 16. This is a summation of the nature of God and the character of Jesus Christ. For this is how God loved the world. You know, I think it bears mentioning that a lot of us, when we think about God, and maybe a lot of people in culture, when they think about faith or when they think about Jesus, they have this picture that maybe God or Jesus or people who follow him are maybe angry. Or maybe God would take delight in, in being able to get us when we got it wrong. But it's not just the, the stories of the Gospels and it's not just the stories uh, in the New Testament that, that follow the Gospels, the, the story of Jesus Christ. It's from the dawn of creation to the end of the book of Revelation, the entirety of Scripture and in and through our lives today that we need to be reminded that God is a God of love. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to ju just stop there and pause there today. That there is a God who came into the world who loves you. And this is what John is saying. This is what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of John. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone. Why don't you say that with me? So everyone. Well that in and of itself is offensive, isn't it? Because I think for me, there's an idea that I kind of want to dictate and I kind of want to orchestrate and I want to kind of draw the lines and the boundaries or, or create the box in which the people that God could love could fit into. But, but Jesus himself, not our interpretation of it, not our hope for it, but Jesus himself tends to draw the boundaries far different. 
so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life, would have a new life today and the certainty of life everlasting. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is giving an invitation for us to experience his love and his freedom in a different way. I mean, from the moment of Jesus' birth, his entire life was pointing to the cross. I mean, from the time that he was baptized in the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, Jesus knew exactly what stood before him. Because he loves. But so often for us, when we face a situation that maybe we feel like we've crossed the boundary or somebody around us has crossed the boundary, we would rather hide it or sweep it under the rug or not face it. We want to conceal it. I grew up in, in North Dakota. I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. And when I was growing up in Fargo, uh, you could get your driver's license when you were 14 years. Not, not a school permit. Like you could legit get your driver's license. You could get your permit once you turned 14. Then you had to take driver safety. That was three months long. And then after that, you, you just got a driver's license. And you could just drive freely with anybody in the car that you wanted to. It wasn't like just you and, and a sibling. It was you had freedom. And so there were friends of mine who were literally driving to school when they were in eighth grade, which is just wrong on so many levels. <laughs> now my parents, my parents were smarter than that. They waited until I was 15 years old. So I was, which is still way too young. I was 15 years old. I, my birthday was in March. I took driver's training uh, I got done with driver's training, took my driver's test, and I was giving, given my driver's license. And so now I had freedom. And by the time I got my driver's license, it was summer. And so there was one morning when my, my dad was going to go to work, and my mom was a teacher, so she was going to be at home. I had baseball practice. And so I wanted to be able to drive to baseball practice. And so that morning when my mom and dad were both there, I said, hey, can I take the car to, to, to baseball practice? And my dad said, sure, why don't you take mom's car? Well, let me, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about mom's car. It was a 1981 maroon Chevy Caprice Classic. I mean, my Titanic blushed because of how big that car was. I mean, it was huge. It was a boat. And so my dad said, hey, why don't you take mom's car? I'm like, yeah, right, dad. Can I take your car? Now, my dad had just gotten, we never had this as a family, but my dad had just gotten a new Honda Accord and it was awesome. I know some of you are like, oh, Honda Accord, that's not a great car. For us, that was a great car. And it smelled new. And it had a manual transmission, so it means it, you knew that you were cool. It had a sunroof. And so at that point, I had hair that could blow in the breeze. <laughs> and so that day, I said, Dad, can I please take your car? And he said, yeah, you can take my car. Just be very careful. Make sure you park way away from anyone, which means like a mile from another car. And I promise, like I promise I'll take care of the car. And so I left my house. I picked my friend Colin up. And then Colin and I were going to go to our baseball stadium, which was Jack Williams Baseball Stadium. And so we just had to go down 32nd Avenue and take Elm Street, which would run us south about four miles. And then Jack Williams was right on the left-hand side of the road. Well, as Colin and I are going down Elm Street, all of a sudden there are all these signs that say, caution, wet paint. Now, 
I know, it gets worse, trust me. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, and I said to Colin, I said, and I don't know what I was saying. I said, hey, watch this. And so I started going back and forth on the wet paint. Yeah, and then I stopped the car and we looked in the back and I'm like, whoo, it was like I was drawing new lines and we thought it was the best thing ever until we got to Jack Williams. I forgot to tell you that the color of the car was dark gray and by this time yellow. And there was paint everywhere. And so I did park in the back of the parking lot because I didn't want anyone to see what I had done. And Colin said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I believe that my life might end today. Like it was a good run. This is over. And so I drive home. I drop Colin off. I'm literally sweating. I was probably dehydrated. I had sweat so much. And so I get home, and thankfully my dad was still at work, and my mom was inside doing something. And so I thought, I'm going to clean up this mess that I had made. And so I took a bucket of water, put some soap in it, and I took one of those cloths, and I tried to, to wipe it off. It didn't come off. Like that stuff, it sticks to the road for a reason. It wouldn't come off. And so I thought, maybe I could get a plastic brush. And so I got a plastic brush, and I started just as hard as I could, and my arm wasn't th sore from throwing. My arm was sore from scrubbing. It wouldn't come off. And so I thought to myself, hey, I'll go in my dad's toolbox and I'll get one of those putty knives. Yeah, it was worse than that. And so, so I'm, really, I'm really carefully trying to like scrape the paint off until all of a sudden I see that little curly cue of clear coat paint come with it. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's not getting better. Maybe I'll move to the wheel well because that wasn't even black and yellow. That was just yellow. And so I thought that maybe one of those wire bristled brushes would be the answer. I told you it was going to get worse. And I realized that no matter how hard I just was trying so hard to clean up the mess that I made. And it, everything I tried, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And it does, doesn't it? Because we do it all the time. There's a cost that comes when we try to conceal things. Relationally, emotionally, individually. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Because the reality is, is there are times in life where we, we sit in a mess. And the mess that we're sitting into, we just don't know how we're going to be able to clean it up. And there are also those of us who are sitting as a result of the mess that somebody else made. And sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we're facing, we're facing something that seems to be unforgivable. And we start to wonder, what's, what's the way out of the mess? And I know in a, in a room this size and all the people who are at our local sites and campuses and online that I don't know if we could really count how many of us are experiencing, experiencing a mess right now. And many of those <laughs> seem to be unforgivable. It was June 17th, 2005. It was in Charleston, South Carolina. There was a church called Emmanuel AME. Some of you will remember the story. 
And there was a community that uh, was incredibly, incredibly tight. And they were holding a Bible study. And there was a person who had just made, uh, made their way into that Bible study. And the, the people of Emmanuel had welcomed this young man as if he was one of their own. He was family. But on June 17, 2005, they were now facing something that, well, it seemed to be unforgivable. Take a look. The night of the shooting, me and my husband went out and had dinner that night. So when my husband got home, my phone rang. My sister called me first. She said, Nadine, you talked to mom today? I said, I talked to her earlier. She said, well, I just heard that it was a shooting at the church. I said, what church? She said, mama church. I said, mama church? And during that time, I was talking to her on the phone. My girlfriend was texting me, Nadine, please call me. It's an emergency. So when we got down there, they had the street block off. Before my husband could have stopped, I was already out of the car, about to run to the church. And the police grabbed me. He said, ma'am, I can't let you go back there. I said, sir, you don't understand. My mom is in there. She said, auntie, where are you? I said, I'm in the car coming to the embassy suite hotel. She said, who's driving? I said, baby's driving. That's my husband. She said, auntie. I said, what, Najee? She broke down and cried. She said, granny is gone. I dropped. I started screaming. I said, no, she's not. I said, I'm on my way. I'll be there in a second. So we got there. Everybody who was already there already left. So they were kind of basically waiting on me to come. You Nadine? I said, yes, I am. They grabbed me and said, come on, sweetie. I said, where are we going? We're going upstairs to the room. Got upstairs. And the corner was there. And she said, who is you? I said, I'm the daughter. She said, I'm sorry, baby. Your mama's going. I break down and cry, started screaming. I said, this can't be for real. This can't be. I said, I want to see her. She said, man, I'm sorry, we can't let you see her. I said, I need to see my mama. I need to touch my mama. I need to feel my mama. Everything ahead in the world is gone. And then I got home, I couldn't sleep. My husband grabbed me. He said, you're going to be all right. I said, I don't know I am. I said, everything that I want in the world is gone. And what hurt the most that I didn't get a chance to see her. They won't let me see my mama. Then the last time I saw her, she was in the casket. To be able to admit that there are times in life where people have made a mess that has directly impacted us goes without saying, doesn't it? And I think when we live in the wake of that, and maybe you know because you're living in the wake of that, that burden that you're carrying is, it's just so heavy. It just, it takes so much life from you. 
And it's not your fault. It does it for all of us. I mean, there are times in life when we're just holding on to way more than we can carry on our own. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus is doing. When he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Set them free. Now, it's really important to know what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. I mean, you think about what was going on with Nadine and her family and the other nine families who, who had loved ones whose lives were, were ripped away from them. Forgiveness is not saying that somehow what happened is, is okay. It's not okay. It wasn't okay. There was, there was nothing that could make that act okay. Forgiveness is not saying that it doesn't matter. Oh, when you're living in response to the mess that someone's brought into your life, it matters. Forgiveness is not saying that somehow if we forgive, then we're going to have that experience erased from our minds. That's just not forgiveness. And what forgiveness is, is to be able to place that which we cannot carry into the hands of the one who, who can. I mean, it's Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, hey, if you're, if you're carrying something, maybe the mess that you've made on your own, that you've been trying so hard to clean it up on your own. If, if you're, and that weight is just holding you down, come to me. If you're living in the wake of what somebody has done to you, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens, who are in a place where you just don't know if you can hold on any longer. Come to me, and I'll be the one who will hold on to you. This is what is the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the striking thing about what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. When he's saying it to people who didn't even know the, the cost of what it is that their actions were doing. Who didn't know who he was. Who didn't know what it was doing to the people who loved them. And Jesus didn't say, hey, once you get your act together. And once you get to a place where you can say, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Or, or I'm sorry, I did mean it and I would take it back. Jesus didn't wait for that. He moves first. He goes to the cross first. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5. He says, but God showed his great love. He showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Let this one sink in for a moment. We get it mixed up. We get it reversed. We put the cart in front of the horse. We say, if you are in the right place and if you do the right things, then God could show his mercy and his love to you. <laughs> it says, for sending Christ to die for us while we were still in sin. When we were still far away. Ephesians chapter 2. You, you can't get away from this. 
It'd be really easy to say it would be another way, but if we are going to faithfully look at what God's word says, we, we have to look at these things. Not from a punitive standpoint, but from a love standpoint. Because when we've been hurt or when we've hurt, we want somehow to exact justice, but our idea of justice and God's are entirely different. Ours is punitive and God's is restorative. To make us whole. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us and that includes you. Whoever you are, wherever it's been, whatever's happened, loved us so much that even though we are dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it's only by God's grace. That's a heavy word. Word in the Greek is charis. It means uh, unmerited favor. It means undeserved kindness. It means to have the, the, the debt paid. It means to have the, the, the wrong right. But let me give you a visual for what this word means. It means to bridge the gap. Because it's in those places where we've intentionally, unintentionally, we've drawn away. And it's God's grace that comes close. I'll never forget as I was trying to clean up that car. My mom came outside and she's like, what'd you do? You want to know what I said? I said, don't tell dad. (laughs) And she's like, do you think he's not going to notice? She said, do you think that this is something that he's not going to be able to forgive? Look at it again, John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. World could mean the the earth. World could mean all the people that inhabit it. You want to know what else this word world could mean? It could mean all the forces that act in opposition to God. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that anyone, everyone, who dares to believe that this promise could be for them would be set free, would have a new way. 48 hours after Dylan Roof entered into that church and took the lives of nine people, he was brought into the courtroom for his arraignment wasn't a matter of whether or not he was guilty. They all knew that he did it. And in the courtroom that day were family members of the people who, whose lives had been stolen from them. And the judge gave the family members an opportunity to speak. What would you say? I 
I mean, I don't want you to imagine what you'd say because that would have to force you into a position where somebody you love would have their life taken from them. But maybe think about it for you. Where somebody has made a mess in your life. What do you say? If you're given the freedom to say anything that you want, what would your response be? I'm not here to say that mine would be any different. But the family members began to speak. And it was, in some ways, shocking. And in every way, it was almost like it was offensive. Because their response from a worldly perspective, just, just didn't seem to fit. Or maybe they were choosing a way that would be a way that we could start to live our lives. To start to deal with the wrongs that we've done and the wrongs that have been done to us. Take a look. You are representing the family of Ethel Lance, is that correct? And you are whom, ma'am? The daughter. Her daughter. I'm listening, and you can talk to me. I just want everybody to know, to you, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have rescue on your soul. Your name, sir? Anthony Thompson. Mr. Thompson. Saying the same thing that was just said. You know, I forgive you, my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most. Christ so that he can change it, he can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than what you are right now. A lot of people was angry with what I said. But what I said, I said it from the bottom of my heart. It's like something just came over to me. It's like, no, you're not doing this today. Not today. And I knew that's what my mom would want. Not to have hatred in your heart, despite of what people do to you. And so when I sat down, God just came, the same low voice I heard when I was five years old. He said, I have something to say. And I was like, whoa, and I got right up. So I had to forgive him. I didn't want him to die either. I didn't want the death sentence. I wanted him to live. So maybe he could repent later on, turn his life around. God would, would save him. He might get there, that might be on the other side. All he had to do is repent and, and ask God to forgive him. I don't know of any other religious belief system besides Christianity where an innocent man 
hangs on a cross, suffering immeasurable pain, torment, torture. And he looks out at his accusers, and he prays a prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that act of forgiving people, even when they do what they do in ignorance, is the greatest act of love and the greatest act of release that one could ever experience. The beauty of forgiveness is whether Dylan Roof accepted responsibility, demonstrated remorse, doesn't matter. Those that he offended can forgive him and walk away free while he continues to carry the burden of his actions. It's not your weight to carry. It's God's weight, and he carried it. He took it to the cross. He didn't have to go. He went on his own accord. He loved the world so much that he gave his life for you. Jesus goes on in John chapter 3, verse 17. He says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. God didn't send his son into the world to continually pound into us just how, how wrong we get it again and again and again and again. He sent his son into the world to save us by his grace. I mean, the most well-known song in the, the world, aside from the tune of Happy Birthday, is Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that, help me out, saved a wretch like me. Look, we've all been lost and. God says that you're worthy to be found. We all at times are, are blinded to realize what, what it is, the implications of, of what we've done, but, but God wants to, to open our eyes so that we could to see the, the love that he has for us and the love that he can give to the world through us. I mean, there, there is this temptation and it's deserved to, to hold on so tightly to those things and to say, I'm not going to let this go, but... But it's killing us. It's taking life from us. And Jesus says, that's what I went to the cross for. Not to say it's okay and not to say that it didn't matter, but to put those things to death so that you can have life. Isaiah, well before the time of Jesus, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. And he talks about the cross. He talks about the scandal of the cross. And he says, yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And, it, and we thought his troubles were a punishment for God, a punishment for his own sins. But, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed by his wounds. You've been saved. Isaiah will go on, we all are like sheep and we stray away, yet God loves. Paul says, for the wages of sin, the penalty of it, the wages of sin, it's, it's death. And, and we can't get around that. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Don't miss it. Don't miss the life that God has for you. Don't miss the life that he's extending to you when you're in that place where you say, there's nobody who could clean this mess up that I've made. God can. And he did. Don't miss the life when you're holding, deservedly so, onto those things that have been done to you in such a way that you don't know if you'll ever be able to shake free from them. I went to the cross for that too. For the wages of sin, the cost of this mess that we all can encounter in so many different ways. The the wages, the cost is death, but, but God has a different way. And we encounter that, that grace, that love in this meal that we're going to share with one another right now. So just hold on to your communion, uh, to your packets, to whatever it is that you have at home. I'm going to say the words of Christ's promise and then we'll say the Lord's prayer with one another and then, then we'll take the bread and drink the wine and the grape juice together. It was in the night in which he was betrayed. Our Lord Jesus took the bread and after breaking it, he gave it for them all to eat. And he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take it and eat it and do it to remember me. The same, in the same way, after they had eaten, he took the cup of wine and after giving thanks, he gave it for them all to drink. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and it's shed on the cross. It's shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink it and do it to remember me. Would you pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught us? The words will be on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to take the wafer of the bread. This is the body of Christ and it's given for you. You can take your grape juice or your wine. This is the blood of Christ and it's shed for you. I receive this blessing. May the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may it strengthen you and keep you in his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to close in a song of worship together. And during that time, it's All Saints Sunday. All Saints Sunday is a time in the church where we remember all the people in our family who's lost their lives and whose lives have been claimed by the grace of Jesus Christ. So during this song, and we weren't able to do this last year because of COVID, so during this song you're going to see the names of all the people in our church family, family who we've lost in the last two years. And so if that's somebody uh, in your love, a loved one of yours, names will go in alphabetical order. People have been taking pictures. It's just a time for us to remember as we sing hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you for the cross. Amen. Amen.